0: Thank you for joining us at Essential Ethics, your gateway to ethical discussion and education about complex bioethical issues that arise when caring for sick children. Essential Ethics is made possible by funds raised through the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. We want you to be inspired by the stories of courage of our patients and parents and the staff who care for sick children, and be inspired by the clear thinking of the team at the Children's Bioethics Centre when things get tricky. Welcome everybody to another podcast from the team at Essential Ethics. Essential Ethics is brought to you by the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital. I'm your host, John Massey. Today we propose another classic ethical conundrum. What do you do when the parents of your patient demand investigations or treatments that you think are unnecessary? To help us out from this conundrum, I have two experts. The first is Dr. Juliana Antolovich from the Department of Developmental Medicine here at the Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome. We also have Professor Lynne Gillam, who's the Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Service here at the Royal Children's Hospital, and she's at the University of Melbourne. Welcome Lynne. Thanks John. It's a very connected world where parents have access to lots of information, and in a medical environment in which we expect parents to be partners, it's no wonder that they might come to us and start demanding investigations uh, or treatments. So I'd like to put a hypothetical case to you. Just before I do, I'd just like to reassure our listeners that this is not a real case. This is not one person. This is based on my clinical experience, the sort of things that have happened to me, and are really worthwhile anchoring our discussion, though, with this case. So, Juliana, I'm going to call our friend Sally. She's a nine-year-old girl, and she comes to you with recurrent headaches. Some of these are typical for migraine, others for nonspecific, generalised headache. She's starting to miss school a few times per week. She's otherwise healthy. careful neurological exam does not reveal any neurological signs. In your history, you unearth that her mother died from a brain tumour about six months ago after a very difficult diagnostic odyssey. Either Sally or her father, Simon, uh, have been coping well uh, with the death of the mother. Simon demands a head CT scan to find out the cause of the headaches. So is this the sort of situation that you've been in before?
1: Many times. I think that the world that we practice in now has changed very dramatically. And if we think about the the classical clinical triad of parent, child and doctor, Um, that has changed to include the parent as expert for a variety of reasons. And it's something that I'm very interested in because it's changed the balance of the clinical consultation. Um, In this situation that you've described, there are elements of that but hearing the case, the first thing that comes to mind is that this father isn't really asking for a CT scan. He's really asking that nothing terrible ever happen to his family again, which adds to the complexity.
0: So what I might do as we start to draw line in here is perhaps ask an ethical question
1: mm-hmm. and,
0: and, and see. So the first one is, is it ethically OK to refuse... Simon's request for a head CT scan for his daughter. But we could also flip that round a little bit and think, is it ethically appropriate to do a head CT scan for Sally, even if it's not directly medically indicated? So this is a sort of case that mm. might come to a clinical ethics committee. So Lynne, how might we think about this or approach this? Mm.
2: So John, if we take your first question first, is it ethically okay to refuse I think that is a good place to start because it starts to set some of the parameters. If we take the basic job of the doctor as being uh, acting in the best interests of the child, then the question would be, could it somehow be contrary to the best interests of the child to have this scan? And if it could, that would be a solid ethical basis for saying not to do it. Even if we could understand why Simon... Sally's father might be requesting it and might be very invested in having it. The primary ethical obligation is to the child, not to the parent. So that would be a starting point.
0: So Lynn, you've raised a concept of best interests and in ethics, if we're thinking of principles of ethics, that's beneficence, doing doing good. Juliana, no, as a very well trained and very caring paediatrician, that you go into bat for your patients, that you want to do the best for them, best interest. Is that what this is about? Are you doing the best for the child? Is the scan the best for the child?
1: So if if we take that view of best interests, it's, it's a complex space. And in the short term, it might be best for dad, to have the C team be reassured and it might also be best for this girl who may also be worried that she will suffer the same fate as her mother but it's a short-term best interest and I think this is where standing back and thinking more broadly about what this means for this child this is one test That is not without consequence for her immediately. But in six months' time, if she continues to have headaches, will we do another CT scan? So best interests is an important framework to consider the case in, but it is much broader than the decision we're making here and now.
0: So you're trying to think of best interests as not as one thing necessarily, there's a whole lot of elements to it.
1: Absolutely. And you can get very stuck if you only think of it through one lens because there's a very straightforward answer and the straightforward answer could be definitely don't do the CT because that's the wrong test. Um, the other equally short-term straightforward answer is let's do the CT, we'll stop everybody worrying and move on and pretend this hasn't happened and neither really address the deeper issue, neither really address what's absolutely best for Sally.
0: Lynn, you perhaps have a lens that you want to look through mm. on this too?
2: So, if we think about what Juliana's just said there about the concept of best interests, and you flagged that it's a complex concept, so two things come out. One is short term versus long term, uh, and how it might be the case that something that promotes a child's well being or is good for a child in the short term turns out not to be in the long run. The other thing that we're weighing up here is perhaps the psychological well being of the child uh, versus the physical risks and burdens of having the the CT scan. So there are some potential risks and I think you were uh, alluding to that. Um, So as you said, it's not without risk and that has to be weighed Mm, in the balance. Mm.
0: So what might be the risks of a CT scan for Sally?
1: There's a number of things to consider. Um, Firstly, at age nine, is that right? Mm. She may well need a general anaesthetic and that is not without risk. Um, There are long-term risks of high-dose radiation, which comes with a CT scan. Again, not inconsequential. Now, when you look at those two risks um, versus a real benefit for the child, um, it doesn't stack up when we really think the likelihood of there being any pathology in the brain as being almost zero. Um, and so those risks to me seem much greater um, than than the numbers you might see on paper. I think the third risk that Lynn's alluded to as well is the risk to this girl's emotional and psychological well-being, because it sets up a situation where we won't necessarily address what the key problem is and create future is because further investigations will be done chasing an organic diagnosis where there probably isn't an organic diagnosis.
0: So you think this is mostly about anxiety from Simon the father and perhaps the girl that won't be addressed by doing a CT scan?
1: I think it might even be reinforced by doing a CT scan. It may reassure, well, it will reassure them for the moment, but it won't address the underlying issues. The headaches are real. The headaches are important and related to or potentially separate to, there is an intense grief reaction. There there could be a whole range of things that you would have to explore if you were the clinician. And Saying a bald, no, I won't do it, or yes, I will do it, doesn't address any of those bigger picture issues.
0: Lynn, Juliana's now brought in another concept. So we were initially thinking of best interests and now we're balancing that against harms, which in ethical terms would be non-maleficence and they are probably not always independent or they're part of the scales, if you like. So do you want to just take us through a little bit about harm, and and some people even go as far to call it a harm principle, and how that might relate to this case. Mm,
2: Sure. So I think um, benefit and harm, or doing something good for the child and doing something that might cause some detriment to the child, are really two sides of the same coin. So when we talk about best interests, both of those are captured in that. Both harm and benefit, and likewise best interests, uh, are multifaceted, and that's one of the complicating features here so if we think about what would promote a child's best interests we need to think about both physical well-being, psychological well-being, emotional well-being and the, and what we might broadly call social well-being, relationships with the family relationships with other people then we need to think about it um, not just in the short term uh, but over a length of time. There is a view, uh, I think, in medical ethics or, and in particular in paediatric ethics that the most important thing is not to do harm to the child, to not make the child worse off, which is a good starting point. Your difficulty is, and this, this case is an example of that, of trying to work out which of the various forms of harm you're concerned about and what action would actually produce no harm. So it sounds like a simple concept. It's a good starting point. But once you try to actually put it into practice, you've got to be aware that it becomes complex.
0: And and Lynn, the complexity is not so much that there's best interests or there's harm, but actually working out what that is and a value judgment about those which may not be shared between the doctor who says mm. CT is not going to help and mm. the father says it's going to help me mm. or my child? Mm.
2: Exactly. So in terms of trying to work out what's in someone's best interests, one of the issues is risk and probability. So what is the actual degree of risk of the, the sort of um, negative effects of, of having an MRI? So you have to have a general anaesthetic What are the risks of general anaesthetic? Well, most general anaesthetics are done very safely, so the risks are low in that sense. But if something goes wrong, it could be very bad. And the father might be weighing that up against how much better he thinks that he and his child will feel emotionally if they can have the CT scan and see that there's nothing wrong. So it's really hard weighing up things that aren't very comparable, a remote risk of something really bad happening versus immediate emotional reassurance. And doctors might see it one way, that the physical risk is the most important and we should avoid that at all costs. Father and child might see it differently and say, what matters most to us is how we feel, our emotional well-being. So we're prepared to take that small risk for the sake of, uh, as we see it, or perhaps as the father sees it, making our lives go better.
0: I mean, I don't think I'm going to let uh, Juliana just be sort of quietly, quietly bat away this this dad. He's really keen uh, for this study. He knows that you're perhaps not entirely convinced that that's the thing to do. But he's the dad and he's the natural decision-maker and he has what some people term parental authority, Mm. So, how does that fit in here? Lynn's just had a hand up. Juliana looks relieved. Lynn.
2: Okay. So, the thing I didn't say before was that the father also probably knows that there is a remote chance that that CT scan might find something. You suggested before it's not the right test. But could you say 100% hand on heart? if the ct scan is done there is no chance that it would find anything that's the cause of the headaches
1: i think this is one of the things i find most difficult about being a doctor the only thing i can say with 100% certainty is that i'm never 100% certain about anything and that's it's it's just not built into the way i practice to be able to put my hand on my heart and say there will be nothing There, because there's always very rare and remote. um, You know, much of what we do when we go into clinic is try and work out what's the most dangerous thing it could be and exclude it, and then what is it most likely to be. In this situation, we might find something on the CT that is harmless or irrelevant, and then we have a problem to deal with because we don't know the significance, and there is a real risk of additional iatrogenic harm that comes from doing a a test where you don't have a clear, very specific question because then you will find other things that you will chase with more potentially dangerous things. And it is a thing we must be very careful about because we open another door and another door and another door and there is a cumulative harm that can occur in that setting. What I can say in this situation is given that the neurology is completely normal.
2: Just explain to me a little bit more what that means, the neurology is normal. So I I
1: suppose I have to go backwards a little bit. It would be very, very unusual to present with a brain tumour with the only symptom being the headaches of the type that this young girl is having. Moreover, given that her physical examination is completely normal, this adds to the certainty that there is not something growing in her head that is causing this problem.
0: Juliana, I think that you've uh, started to build quite a case of, of the harms here in radiation, in finding unexpected results that need seeing through. And I think you know, at the beginning, we were really talking about uh, a missed opportunity, an opportunity cost to actually get into what the real situation mm. uh, might might be. But Lynn we didn't answer the question about the limits of parental authority.
2: Mm. Mm. So if we think about it from the father's perspective, this is his child. Uh, parents are the decision makers for children. And in society, we essentially allow parents a very wide scope for making decisions about their children's well-being, about what activities they allow them to do, what sport they participate in, and so on, and in the healthcare arena, likewise, we allow parents a very well. This is our question, isn't it? Do we allow parents a very wide latitude, or once the family walks into the hospital, is the family now, the parents now obliged to do exactly what they're told? by the doctor and they get no choice. So the way that we typically think about this is to think in terms of where are the limits to what, parents can, what decisions parents can make for their child. Um, and we set the limits essentially at the point where the parent's decision seems to be likely to be significantly harmful to the child. So uh, in ethical terms, we call it the zone of parental discretion. And this is a I guess, um, a protected space where we say it's okay for parents to make a decision that might not be perfect for their child. It might be suboptimal in some way, but provided it's not harmful, it's okay. And we can go we can go with that. We can tolerate it, even if it's not what the doctor thinks is best, or even if it's not what the doctor would choose for their own child. So one way of framing our question here is to ask whether this CT scan is in the zone of parental discretion. How harmful is it? Now, there are uh, if I think about this in comparison to other situations, the amount of harm that could be done to this child from having a CT scan is probably fairly low mm-hmm. in in comparison to other decisions that parents make. So I think there would be room for the father to step up and say, actually, yes, I understand that there might be some risks, but really they're quite low, aren't they? And I'm a sensible person and I'm not going to pursue this odesty of CT scan after CT scan. I just want you to do this. This is my child. I know her best. I know her best to look after her well-being. I would have a lot to say then. What would you say, Julia? Well, I, I
1: think, as you know, I absolutely believe in that zone of parental discretion. And the work that I do day to day requires me to play in that space often. I think that one of the challenges is where do we end up with when we have lots of suboptimal decisions? What, what cumulative effect does that have? And again here, the father might be very sensible and might be saying, look, one CT is all it will take, then I'm just going to drop this whole idea. But this is where my brain as the clinician is there saying, we're actually not talking about what we need to talk about, which is your underlying worry, the horribleness of your journey. And a CT will appease you for a short time, but it doesn't allow you to deal with everything else. And and it might seem as if I'm being quite Harsh and not respecting his authority to make the decision. I think this is where we need to tread carefully because he will leave my clinic room and find somebody who will do the CT scan. And it is a case of engaging and ensuring that a good decision is made for that child. But I would strongly still. Lean to the side of not having a CT done because I truly don't think it's in anybody's best interests despite it feeling like it is going to be in the best interests.
0: So, Juliana, one of the things you've raised is what paediatricians do
2: Mm. in
0: working in that space, I'd say live in that space, Mm. is working with families, is maintaining the engagement. You've highlighted that potentially
2: Mm.
0: to leave your clinic and go somewhere else could actually be worse for for this girl. Just wanted to bring up something that that Lynn raised, because you're not all that concerned about a head CT. Uh, Juliana, you raised the risk of anaesthetic, which probably for a nine-year-old you wouldn't need for a CT, for most nine-year-olds. If it was an MRI scan, now that throws in two issues. It would need an anaesthetic. Most nine-year-olds wouldn't lie still there. And it would be a significant increase in use of resource, both for a day stay admission and for valuable MRI time. So let's change the threshold here. <laughs> what if it was an MRI scan under anaesthetic? Would that make your decision making easier? Juliana first, then Lynn.
1: Um, easy because the waiting time to get an MRI with the general anaesthetic is so long that I could do all the
2: therapy working <laughs> work in between three days. Uh, that's an interesting point, Julia. Yes. You could say, yes, we'll do the MRI, um, but it's going to be six months and I want to do these other things beforehand. Um, would that think, be okay?
1: I think it would be dishonest to do that um, without being clear with the family that that was, well, with the father and his daughter that, that that was my intention. But the reality is um, in a public hospital system where there are limited resources, an MRI scan under a general anaesthetic for a child where there is no concern on the clinician's part that there is an underlying neurological problem will take months. And even in my typical patient that usually does have an underlying neurological problem, it's in the order of 12 months. So it's... And that has to be discussed openly with the parent. And they may choose also to try and seek that out in a private setting in an alternate space.
0: Do you think it's an unreasonable use of resource because of all of the extras that go with it and the fact that there's a lot of kids really, really needing an MR, a CT we could get next week if we wanted Mm. Does that factor into your decision-making?
1: It does. And again, this is something that I find difficult being a bedside doctor. I do sit closer to the advocate for my patient place. I'm aware of those justice issues. And in this situation here, the the, the allocation issue becomes more important because it really, it it means that somebody who I'm looking after who desperately does need a scan will potentially miss out on that opportunity, albeit in 12 months time.
0: So Lynn, I'm going to come back to a point you raised. You said, okay, he's got got a headache. It's just possible the CT is going to reveal a a, a brain tumour. What if he was insisting on some other body part that wasn't related. He was sure that this was due to malalignment of the spine, wanted a spinal series, mm. which really seems far-fetched in terms of the association mm. with the headaches. Would yeah. that alter your feeling about acquiescing to his request? So that's a really good question,
2: Job, because it pushes me to think about where the line might be. So I have suggested, as you said, that a CT scan could plausibly find something, so there's not zero reason to do it. There might be a very small reason to do it. But if we're doing a CT scan of the big toe or something like that, where there's no possible clinical rationale for that, there's no connection between, I assume, between Take big toes yourself. and <laughs> headaches. Uh, so it's not going to be possible to find anything. In which case, there isn't any good reason to do it, except that you think that it might be psychologically beneficial. Now, again, Juliana has been talking about maybe it's psychologically beneficial in the short term, but that won't carry on. So even that argument's not very strong. And then coming to your MRI question, if it's something that also consumes a, a large amount, well, either costs a lot of money in itself, or perhaps better understood as takes up a place on a scarce resource. So there aren't very many MRI machines. There's a long waiting list. Uh, Some children urgently need an MRI because there will be something there Mm. to find. Uh, That gives you an added reason not to do it. The question that fascinates me on the resource thing is whether, Juliana, you would say to this father, look, you've asked for an MRI. This is a really scarce resource. There is a 12-month waiting list, and that's because there are very few places, there are a lot of children who have a clear medical need. So, in fact, we can't do that for your child because of this scarce resource issue.
1: Would you say that? No. I actually think that managing um, rare resources is actually part of our responsibility, and shifting that as a guilt thing onto a family is absolutely the wrong thing that guilt? to do. Why do you say uh, guilt? I, Well, I feel like the hard decision about choosing not to have a scan because the resource is rare... Um, has to rest with me, not not with the family. I think they've got enough to deal with, and actually thinking that they may think that way themselves. Think about the resources, but putting it on to them to say, well, it's unreasonable or not necessary because this is a, a there's a resource issue. I don't think that's something that families should have to carry or add to their decision making, because this this is. Um, They are thinking about their child. We're using logic, rational arguments and the space in which they're making decisions are very different. And I have had families come to me who have had those sort of arguments put onto them from clinicians about rare resources and it's actually very dangerous and detrimental and indeed in what way is it damaging or detrimental people have been very upset about it and it has made them feel like their child is not worthwhile and that may be the reason why that decision is made It may have nothing to do with it, but it has been damaging to families. Um, But I think that's my responsibility to carry. If I have to think about resources, um, I need to be making those decisions. Yeah. I think I'd better stop there.
0: (laughs) Juliana, I think you've given a good response. Just to remind listeners who may not know, but Juliana is from the Department of Developmental Medicine and so she's a very strong advocate for children and their families of kids with some very serious disabilities and I think that it's not uncommon for them to feel the decisions Mm -hmm. are made Against if you like the their children based on this resource issue, so I can exactly, really feel yeah. your sensitivity there's there's a couple of things though in this case I just want to explore because I think we're actually working towards some criteria here in which we can help us think through the problem. one is dad's capacity to make the decision so okay, he's the father, the natural decision maker for his child. we've had situations and parents come in affected by drugs or alcohol or psychosis. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's your take? Do you think in this situation that Dad has capacity at least to make a reasonable request? Is that what he's doing?
1: He's not making an unreasonable request. I would say he's grieving. He's angry. He has been through something awful and perhaps perceives that there's been some medical wrongdoing or error or thoughtlessness. So I don't think he is in a situation where he can think as clearly. That said, the reason why we as doctors don't treat our family members is it is always an emotional situation. And so I don't look at his request and think he's mad or bad. I think he's a caring, worried father. But that's where that triad works, that he brings the specific information about his family His beliefs, and I bring the theoretical and technical knowledge to the story, and the three of us come together and make what is the best decision.
0: So, you've just talked about a triad and then talked about two people, which leaves me with exactly no, no, I mean, Mm. uh, Sally
1: was in there somewhere, she was,
0: yeah, I don't know, it's uh, because it was really going to be, I think, part of this equation, a part of establishing some criteria. And we've also been thinking about parental authority, Mm. so she's nine, but. What if she was 16? So, Lynn, how would you think about the involvement of the child in Mm. these decisions?
2: So even at nine, the child should be involved in the conversation, uh, understand what's being discussed. And if some form of intervention is being proposed, I think that child needs to know about that, not necessarily because the child, as a nine-year-old, would have the definitive say about whether or not... It goes ahead, but the child needs to be able to essentially prepare herself for what's going to happen, understand it better so as to cope with it, understand what's going to happen afterwards. So I can imagine a situation in which the worried parent might want the head CT scan or even the MRI, and yet the nine-year-old is not very keen because both of those are potentially scary procedures. Now in the case where there was a clear medical reason and there were symptoms which suggested there was something going on that needed to be found, the CT or the MRI would go ahead. The child doesn't get to say no and there'll be a lot of support and effort put into helping the child through that. But in this situation where there isn't a good clinical reason, it's really the father's worry. If you had Sally showing you that she was worried about the idea of having a scan or was not that bothered by her headaches and didn't see what the problem was, that would be a, actually a really strong ethical reason to not, a, a, maybe a further strong ethical reason to not go ahead. But I'm wondering, Juliana, in your experience, whether children do manage to express a view about procedures. Very clearly.
1: <laughs> um the number of times that I, without thinking, mention the word bloods in a clinic appointment and then turn to see somebody sobbing, I'm ashamed of how many times that does happen. So children do have very strong opinions about these things, and they're unfamiliar and they're frightening, and they'd rather not do them. Um, and that is important to take into account. I do wonder in this situation where this whether this nine-year-old girl. Is actually just as worried as her dad that something bad is happening. And for me, that's all the more reason to try and address the bigger picture rather than just cleave it off into a single test. But the child's opinion matters very much, whether they're verbal or nonverbal.
0: I think it's, you know, one of the other things is involving the children is not just respect for persons but developing their sense of agency Mm. and personhood and decision-making. And so I think it's really behoven to us to include the children for all the reasons we've added plus that. I think that we've started to put together some criteria that might help us firm up the decision-making, and it's something we talk about in our book when parents and doctors disagree And so I think that what we can agree on probably is that the proposed investigation or test needs to have some legitimate goal. So I guess in this sense, it's at least the right part of of the body. Sort of. (laughs) Yeah, not entirely convinced from Juliana that the parent making the request needs to have capacity Mm -hmm. to make that request.
2: And my sense would be on that that we have to say this parent does have capacity to I think agree. it through. Grief is a very powerful emotion, but if we went around saying everybody who's grieving doesn't have capacity to make a decision, that's not a workable yeah. world. No, I agree. Yeah.
0: I think the child should have some sort of involvement and a clearly older child, more say. And, you know, we're opening a can of worms and ethical discussions. So I think that's going to be another podcast about when children agree or disagree mm. with proposed treatments that the treatment shouldn't have unreasonable use of scarce resources mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. proposed
2: and that's where we might differentiate between the CT and the MRI potentially
0: mm-hmm. in this case and then that what's proposed isn't significantly harmful to the interests mm-hmm. of the child mm-hmm.
2: and that's the bit where we're likely to have the most disagreement we spent yeah. the most most of the time discussing it it. that because mm-hmm. again it sounds simple to say but it's a complex concept and it is possible for reasonable people to have different views on that. Yeah.
0: But we have to wind up and uh, what I'd like to do is is ask Lynn to answer the question that we started with, uh, is it ethically okay to refuse Simon's request for a head CT for his daughter or if you could answer the converse ethical point, is it appropriate to do a head CT scan? I some?
2: think it could be justified to do a head CT, not an MRI, if it was done in conjunction with taking into account the sorts of issues that Juliana was raising. So this is not seen as the one-stop fix for this problem, but it was part of ongoing care for this family.
0: That might pre- stop the fixation on the brain tumour and allow you to engage and work with the family on the... And
2: I'm also bearing in mind the issue that was raised earlier, which was uh, saying no potentially sends this family off somewhere else where they would be less well supported, um, and it might well be important to keep them engaged in the long term. Now, I'm not super confident of that decision, John. I could be argued out of it, but that's where I am at the moment.
0: That's all right, Lynn. You're a a bioethicist, but uh, Juliana is a clinician and a decision has to be made. Juliana?
1: I would do my very best to dissuade Sally and Simon from needing to have a CT scan. I, I feel quite strongly that that is truly in Sally's best interest.
0: Thank you, Lynne, and thank you, Juliana. You're welcome, Thanks, John. John. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more at the Royal Children's Hospital website, just go to rch.org.au forward slash podcasts or find us on your podcast app. If you would like to find out more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, visit us at rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. And there you'll find lots of resources about children's bioethics. We'd love to hear what you thought about this podcast, so please leave us a review. Essential Ethics... Be inspired.